Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. Good evening, everybody. The longer I study God's Word and, and read God's Word, I'm, I'm more and more convinced of the fact that we can't just do a simple reading of the text, right? I mean, it's good, right? We want people to just dive in, to read it, but this is meditation literature, right? This is something that we need to read, reread, 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 and then spend countless hours thinking about, right? I mean, that's the way it was, it was written and intended. I fully believe that you could read over it once, go back and read it again, Get, get deeper, and then get deeper, and then get deeper, and then 10 years later, after you've read it 100 times, another light bulb will go off, yeah. right? And that's the beauty of Scripture. It's the beauty of God's Word is it continues to inspire, to enlighten, to give us the intellectual ability that we need um, to be a light into this world. So tonight, what I'm going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis. You remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Genesis and how Jesus was a representative of the tree of life, the water of life. Well, we're going to pick up right there in Genesis 2, but we're going to bring it forward to another portion of the text. I also mentioned the fact in, um, in my studies, and other people have pointed this out to me, that seeing the, the garden motif repeat itself throughout Old and New Testament is really powerful, and we're going to look at another example of that tonight, and we're going to look at the book of Ephesians, and we're going to look at that in light of Genesis, in, in light of the garden. We'll even make some other allusions to um, some things that happen in the book of Genesis that draw us back into the garden again, but what we're going to look at tonight is the part of of the garden that a lot of people don't like to dwell on, and that's the fall. And how the fall is meant to be rewritten. Ever since the fall happened, God has been at work in reversing it. God has been at work in healing and mending and pursuing and covering and pointing us back into the pre-fall purpose that he had for the world. So you've got Genesis 1 and part of Genesis 2 that's beautiful. And then you've got the rest of the Bible that's just like full of not so easy stuff to read about. Until we get to the very end and then we jump back to Genesis 1 again and it's all beautiful once again. But what do we do in the space in between? So I'm going to read all right, Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 15. And we're going to read through the, into the first several verses of chapter 3 as well. And then I'll jump into Ephesians chapter 5. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see 
what he would call them, and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his, the, um, his, the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Shall she be called woman, because she, has take, she was taken out of man? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. All right, so what do we have right here in the midst of all of this? We've got man is alone, woman is created, serpent comes in and deceives both of them, and their eyes are open to some not-so-good things. And then the rest of the story of the Bible follows suit from this. So this is what is often referred to as the fall, right? As the original sin. But God has been at work, as I said, to try to reverse this. Even in the midst of all this, God is going to pronounce some consequences that happen. He's going to come in, make an appearance, like, oh man, what did you guys do? Why did you do that? Now here's your bed and you've got to lay in it kind of thing. We'll get into all that. But we're going to jump to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to jump through most of the chapter. Okay, a lot of text tonight. Hang with me. Um, I promise, well, I hope that it'll be worth it for you. Um, but we're going to look at how Ephesians 5 draws back, harkens back to this passage that we just read. And if you want, you can move to Ephesians 5 and, and camp out there. I'll bring us back to other texts here and there, but we're going to spend most of the rest of the time in chapter 5 of Ephesians. All right, so I'm going to read the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 5. And I want, while I'm reading this, guys, I want you to just be thinking about what we just went through in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Picture in your mind what's happening with um, the man being alone, the creation of, of Eve, and then the serpent making an appearance and everything that, that followed from that. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as both fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It's a fun passage, right? Starts off with right away, be imitators of God. What did Adam and Eve want to be when they took the fruit? As God. It's all right there, guys. Only here in Ephesians 5, it's going to give us a different method, right? Adam and Eve is going to take one method. They're going to be deceived by the serpent, and they are going to try to seize this God-like identity in the wrong way. We get two things in here, or more than two, but two of the things that stand out here are covetous and idolater. And when you look in Ephesians chapter 5, that is contrasted with being thankful. You cannot covet if you are thankful. Do you guys realize how those are juxtaposed to each other? The level of covetousness we have in us is a direct reflection of just how Grati- uh, how much gratitude we have to God or how little gratitude we have to God for the things in our lives. And to covet, it, it just means to wrongfully desire something, right? To wrongfully want something. If you remember what it said in there in Genesis chapter three, that Eve saw and desired the fruit. There's a wrongful desire, a desire to take something that she was not meant to have. She was coveting. Idolatry means to wrongfully worship something or someone other than God. When we serve ourselves, we are worshiping ourselves. When we look at things wrongfully, we are coveting. That is the the garden narrative. That is the fall narrative. You've got Adam and Eve both there before the serpent. It wasn't just Eve. You've got them both. The text tells us they were side by side and the, the serpent is talking to them and laying it out, here's something for you. God is holding back. You can have something more, and look, it's delicious and desirable, and it looks good to you, and you will be like God. Take it. God wants us to be like him, right? But not like that. Not like that. Not taking the worldly way, not taking the way of the serpent, but by taking the path that he has for us. They had the entire garden. Have you guys ever thought about that? The entire, all of Eden was theirs. They were kings and queens of Eden. They had it all. I can't remember who said it, but I, it, the quote stuck in my mind. It's like if we were stranded on a desert island with just a rock, eventually we would end up worshiping that rock or if we were put into a Garden of Eden and had everything but that rock, we would want that rock. And don't we feel that pull, don't we? We feel that pull inside of us, even even today as followers of Christ, we feel in us that that fight that we have to wage, that, that war to like, no, that's not right. No, God has given me what I need. No, I need to be Thankful. Things aren't ideal in my mind, but God is good, right? And God, all the time, 
and all the time. That's right. But the covetous heart and the idolatrous heart don't believe that. They believe God is withholding something. They could have been thankful, and it's easy for us guys to look back at them and just be like, come on, you guys, you had the entire garden, but you would have been the same way. So would I. Let's look at Ephesians 5. Let's go to 6 through 7. Let no one deceive you with empty words, or because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What just happened in Genesis 3? Right? The, the serpent. This is the serpent deceiving Adam and Eve with empty words. What did he do as he took a little bit of truth and blended it in with a lie? And they bought it hook, line, and sinker. And that's what the world does. That's what the serpent is still working on today, taking bits of the truth of Scripture and twisting it and distorting it. And it's empty and it's evil and we cannot be partners with it. We have to cherish this and we have to guard this and we have to know this so that we can know when the serpent is whispering in our ears. Amen? In Genesis 3 verse 1, Satan said, or the serpent said, did God not say? And he repeats, he repeats God's words, but not completely. Not completely, right? I've heard messages. I've, I've heard uh, certain people and even pastors out there that will say God's word, but not completely, right? And I'm not claiming to be perfect. I try to stay focused on what God's word and be faithful to God's word. I know Dave does that. I know Shorty does that. I know that the people in this church try to do that. And, and we need God's grace to, to guide us and direct us on that so that we aren't guilty of saying God's word, but not all of it. We don't want to be guilty of twisting God's words. We don't want to be empty of deceiving or misleading other people. We don't want to partner with the serpent. A few verses later in verse 4, he says, you won't surely die. Gets them to doubt God. You know, we can't possibly imitate God when our faith is derived from false pretenses. We can't. We're not going to imitate him. We're going to imitate some kind of false version of that. Who does that? Who, who, uh, who likes to copy but distort? Satan, the serpent, right? Constantly the counterfeit. And we will be counterfeits, too, if we don't have our faith rooted on the correct pretenses on God's word and we know God's word so that we can't be guilty of twisting and distorting it and deceiving it and deceiving others. All right, we're going to fast forward to verse 15 now, 15 through 17. This is really good advice, right? Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Okay, be wise. Be wise for the days are evil. They took the wrong wisdom, didn't they? And it said in there that Eve saw it and it was desirable for wisdom. And she wanted that, but she got bad wisdom, right? And we're, ta- we're told to be wise. We're told to eat from the right tree. We're, we're told to find our wisdom from the one who created wisdom in the first place. We're gonna, um, I'm just going to jump over to James chapter 3 and look at verses 13 through 18. It says, now, or, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We need to know why our hope is built on this. We need to know where our faith is. We need to know where our wisdom wisdom from the Lord, from above and not from the earthly things. We need to be able to tell people, this is why we believe what we believe. We're not deceiving them. Our faith is built on truth, right? Our, our faith is built on true wisdom, on the wisdom from the word. And, and that's what they were guilty of and that's what we've all been guilty of is we have found wisdom in the wrong source. We've gone to the wrong source before. And what happens from that, if you go on and you read the next several verses, it tells you what happens when you have the wrong kind of, um, wrong kind of wisdom. Some fruit from that is jealousy, selfish ambition, and it's false. But the right source of wisdom can equal purity, and it can be peaceable, and it can be open to reason, and it's merciful. And what we end up getting is a harvest of righteousness. And we have to be careful, guys. I know, I know Dave talks about this all the time. Our um, church is named after guarding our hearts. Above all else, guard your heart for this wellspring of life, right? We have to be wise. We have to be careful, intentional, how we're walking at all times, or we're going to be tripped up, or we're going to be deceived, and that is how we are going to be imitators of God. We're going to know how Christ lived. We're going to, we're going to read about how Christ lived. We're going to surrender our lives and, and devote our lives to how Christ lived. And we're going to build our faith based on who Christ was and is and always will be. And that is how we will imitate God. We're not going to reach out for that wisdom in a separate source like they did in the garden and how we've all been guilty of before. God is at work rewriting the fall and trying to heal and mend the brokenness that has resulted from that. He started right away with Adam and Eve by covering them, right? He covered them, he sacrificed an animal, covered them, and continued. There's, there's motifs throughout the, the rest of the scriptures how God is pursuing and God is covering and God is trying to restore and point people towards him and we're going to look at another misconception now. And we're going to look at gender roles. We're going to look at the rest of Ephesians chapter 5 here, wives and husbands in light of the garden. 
and some things that have resulted from the garden that has distorted human history. And I believe that there are still people today who are living with the wrong view of how husbands and wives should operate and how God intended husbands and wives to operate. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. But when you look at the fall, what relationship, what vital relationship gets rocked right away? It's the marriage. It is the union between Adam and Eve right away when God's like, hey, what's up? What did you do? My paraphrase, obviously, the, the finger pointing starts happening, right? And Adam's like, well, God, you gave me this woman who did it, right? So first, Adam blames God, not wise, and then he blames Eve, also wasn't just her fault. And then what does she do? It was the serpent, not me, just kept passing the blame, and they were opposed to each other. Adam and Eve were opposed. The serpent won because he drove a wedge between the husband and the wife. That is one of the greatest victories that Satan can have in this world, is to divide a husband and a wife. Because you break up the home, you break up society, right? For millennia, people have been getting this wrong. The church for the most part, has been getting this wrong. All you have to do is be a student of history to know we've been getting it wrong, right? And the Bible is full of examples of people who continue to get it wrong, right? These heroes, these people of the faith that we elevate that just royally screwed up a marriage relationship, right? And the Bible doesn't pull any punches. They show you God shows us over and over like how humanity is going to continue to fail and fail and fail because we need him. Even in America, a nation that's so-called built on Christian principles, women have been oppressed and persecuted for our entire history. And a lot of it stems back to this, a misreading. A misreading of what God intended for men and for women. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your husbands. Ladies, please don't walk out. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right, so I think here that a lot of misconceptions happen of this text because they go back and they interpret it through Genesis 3. Not pre-Genesis 3, but in Genesis 3. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but we can view Ephesians 5 not as a reaffirmation of what happens in Genesis 3, but a call for husbands and wives to relate to each other before the fall happened how that was designed. You guys, your favorite word in here, ladies, submit. I, I'm more and more convinced, guys, that we have to study. I mean, I love our English translations. I really do. But there are a lot of times when they just, they, they drop the ball. And I am not a biblical 
scholar, I know really wise people, smarter people than me put, put these translations together. But guys, I encourage you to look at the Hebrew, look at the Greek, look at original intent, get a concordance, look at how it's used throughout the rest of scripture. Otherwise, you are cheapening your experience with the word of God because God did not give this to us in English. So the word submit is idios in Greek. And it means to treat as one's self. Literally to be united with. What did the serpent do? Divided. This is a call for wives to get back to unite not to crawl on your knees before your husband, not to follow behind them or be beneath them, or never is it once used as an inferior term. It simply means, I, maybe I shouldn't say simply, it means to reunite. You treat your husband as yourself. You are connected with him as one. You go back to Genesis chapter 2 and verses 18 and 20. Those are the two times it talks about why woman was created. And it uses the term azer. We see it in there as help or help meet. Again, I think that cheapens it. Right? The help is something that African American women were called back in the 50s and 60s when they were discriminated against. Right? That's not a, what a wife is. Right? A wife isn't met, meant to sweep and clean up at home and, and take care of the children all the time and serve their husband in every beck and need that he has. Yet, our Christian nation has treated it like that, right? Just go back to the quote-unquote ideal society of the 50s. What a crock, right? So anti-biblical. It's not even funny. That is not the role of women as an azer. And that is why God created you women as an azer. And you know what an azer is? It is a shield. It is a source of life as a defense, as a helper in the most extreme way that could be equated with salvation, to bring about salvation. That's pretty epic, right, ladies? That's why you are created as a defense, as a shield, as a helper to bring about God's mission. Who else is referenced as an azer over and over throughout scripture? God. Let me read you a few verses. So over 20 times it's gonna be used to describe God. Blessed are you, Israel, who is, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your azer. He is the sword of your majesty. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Psalm 20, verse 2. May he send you azer from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. Psalm 33, 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our azer and our shield. That's not how Ephesians 5 is talked about very often, is it? Certainly not how world history has portrayed the role of the woman in the home or in society. Ladies, you have an epic role to play, and we, we as men need you. 
We do. God said we need you. Any man in here said that we don't, you're a liar, right? We need to partner with you in this. Let's look at how a lot of people interpret what is being said here in Ephesians chapter 5. I said they look at it through the lens of Genesis 3. Let me give you an example. After the fall happened, after they did what they did, and God is talking about the consequences, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Ladies, do you guys spend a lot of time reading over that text at night, doing Bible studies on that? Well, let me tell you guys, was this God's design for how he wanted relationships to work? Is that what he's saying in, in Genesis three sixteen? This is how I'm going to make marriages work now. No, he's not. This is how they are going to work because society, because humanity has fallen. This is what the rest of human history will look like, and it has. The word desire, the word desire is teshruka, uh, and the word ruling is mashal. Teshruka is used only a few times. This desire for man, it's not like ladies are going to really want their husbands, and the guys are like, I'm going to rule over you. That's not what it's saying. This desire is used again when God is talking to Cain and said, sin is crouching and its desire is for you. This desire is a desire to subvert, a desire to destroy, a desire to um, overcome, to empower, to, to subjugate, to um, disrespect, to... Um, you name it, it's completely opposite of a good desire. This is not what God intended. And it happened a lot. Let's just look at two examples. Let's, let's look at Sarah. Sarah was an example of this. Anybody remember what she did? She didn't follow her husband's leading. She's like, here, here's Hagar. Sleep with her. We know what kind of screwed up stuff that is, right? And we know what screwed up stuff resulted from it. How about the next generation? How about Rebecca with her sons? Really, Mother of the Year award for Rebecca, right? Let's go trick Isaac. He's old and he's, he can't see. We'll trick him, right? That's the kind of desire we're talking about here. And God is pronouncing this is what women are going to do because of the fall. If they live according to the fall, this is what a relationship will look like. Men, you're not off the hook. We're getting to you in a moment. <laughs> ruling, right? Ruling. Mashal is where we get the word marshal from in our English. Mashal is used prior to this when it's talking about ruling over the animal kingdom. We all know men who have ruled over women like animals, right? Or viewed women in the same way as an object to be controlled, to, to fill their own desires, right? People throughout, throughout Scripture, how many wives and concubines does Solomon have? How about David, man after God's own heart, huh? Yeah, 
maybe in certain ways, but he is a great example of the brokenness of a man and how they view women. Don't take David as a role model when it comes to relationships, right? I, I use Sarah and Rebecca. Let's use their husbands now. Abraham, <laughs> what a jerk, right? A couple of times, just like, here, take my wife, save me. She's my, she's my sister, right? She, well, kind of in a way, but she's like, she's my property. Twice. How about Isaac? Didn't have a very, uh, very good relationship either with, with his, his wife. I mean, early on, yes. But still, looking at women with not the proper respect, trying to rule over them. They are great examples of, of the Genesis 3 fall and the broken relationship. Ephesians 5 is a picture of the reality of God's design, and it is opposite to the result of Genesis 3. It is not calling us back to saying, women, get in your place, and men, you're in charge. That's not what it's saying. It's saying we have got to get back to the pre-fall status here. Wives are designed as the azer, as the defense, as the shield, as the life giver, as the unifier, as the one who is connected and, and strengthens her husband and is called together in this mission together. All right, men, let's get to us now. Let's read Ephesians 5, 25 through 29. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as Christ does the church." Husbands are meant to be the leaders, right? Husbands are meant to lead, but that leadership is not the ruling that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. We're meant to lead as Christ does. And Christ is a servant leader. And men are meant to lead from a place of service, from a place of humility. Christ himself said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If there is ever a call in the lives of men, that is it. Surrender your life for your wife, for society, for the improvement of society, for the call of God on your life, for salvation to come, for the kingdom to come. We have to follow Jesus and his example. Otherwise, we're not worth our wives following. We're not worth our wives being unified with. Ephesians 5 uses the comparison of washing the bride with the word. Guys, if Adam stepped up and, and fulfilled the role, what he should have done was intervene when, when the serpent was twisting the word. 
Guys, we need to know the word of God and we need to cover wives, our wives with the word of God. We need to be praying the word of God over them. We need to be proclaiming the word of God. We need to be living out the word of God. We need to, your wife, to deceive her, to try to drive a wedge. And we have to be there as a defense as well. We know that Adam was standing right there and he did nothing. He was passive. He was not leading. He was flattered and he was deceived by the serpent as well. And he was meant to be a guardian. He was meant to be a shepherd in pursuit of God's mission for Eden. And so are we, men. Married or not, so are we. And you will never be the leader that you were intended to be until Jesus is the one leading your life. Amen. Ephesians 5 uses some powerful words to define a husband's role. It says for husbands to love their wives, to give themselves up for their wives. There is no room for selfishness in a marriage, amen? amen. And men, we should be the least selfish of them all. We have to be because we are called to be, and it says to cherish your wife, cherish your bride, to nourish your bride. If Adam had done that, the serpent would have lost his head that day. And guys, the serpent is still sneaking around your home, and it's time to get out the shovel and go to work. The leadership of men is a selfless leadership. It's a wholehearted leadership. The leadership of a husband seeks Christ first and the heart of his wife second. And nothing else. Everything else falls into place. Men, we'll be taken care of if we do those two things. If we pursue Christ with our whole heart and we nourish and cherish our wives' hearts, it'll all be good. The husband must lead, not from a pedestal, but from his knees. How often do we see Christ on his knees in the scriptures? How often did he get away to pray? Men, we have got to be more devoted to a praying life if we are going to lead the way that we are meant to lead. If we are going to be connected to Christ the way that we are meant to, we have got to pray more. And just think about how world history would be different if men actually did this. Think of the corruption that has been wrought by men throughout history. Yeah, women have done some pretty awful things too, but men, man, we, t we take the cake, right? But we also have the power in our homes, in our communities, to reverse the fall. And men, we have got to be committed to seeing our wives thrive, the women in our community thrive, just as Christ seeks that for his bride. And if Christ's love and commitment to his bride is our example for loving our brides, then we have to step it up. I have to step it up. And we only do that when we surrender more of our lives to Christ and his leadership and our own personal lives. You know, God obviously doesn't want us living in the Genesis 3 story. 
and we will be opposed when we resist it. And the serpent isn't gone. You guys know what the next chapter of Ephesians is all about, right? The, bo- the armor of God, because the war is on, right? And the war has been on, and if we want to live outside of our sin nature, we're going to have to fight for it. If we want the marriage that God has intended, we're going to have to fight for it. If we're going to want the relationships that God has intended, we're going to have to fight for it. Enter Jesus. He is our shield of faith. He is our breastplate of righteousness. He is our belt of truth. He is our helmet of salvation. And he came to be our example. He came to crush the serpent. He came to restore right relationships. He came to heal our brokenness and our broken approach to life and to love. He came to impart God's wisdom. For Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 3, And we, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of Christ. 2 Corinthians three eighteen. And whoever says he abides in him ought to also walk in the same way in which he walked. 1 John 2, 6. Whether we're single Whether we're married, whether we're wives or husbands, our call is to be like Jesus, to abide in Jesus, to be unified with Jesus, and then and only then will we see God's kingdom come in our homes and in our relationships. Let's not live in the Genesis 3 narrative any longer. Let's cling to Jesus, our hope, the serpent crusher, and rise above, let's treat our relationships with more love, with more humility, with more serving, with more care, with more purity, and let's see our relationships thrive. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.